the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Wednesday, February 8, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. We have uh, David Dollar, our associate producer in the house. We have our chief producer, Bill. And uh, I'll give you a few thoughts on the State of the Union uh, in a little bit, in a few moments, a little later in the hour. Um, I, I like to focus on the durables. And this is a new and different durable. Dennis Prager has a hell of a column up this week at Town Hall. He's writing of his synagogue. Most synagogues have prayers that are said every uh, Saturday, every Sabbath, but prayers for the United States and the leadership of the United States. In Prager Synagogue, the prayer currently reads this way, quote, Eternal God, we ask your continued blessings for our country, the United States of America, a beacon of light, liberty, and justice in a darkened world. Sustain us in times of uncertainty. Guard us from calamity. Give us the courage to confront evil and the confidence never to yield to fear. Protect those who guard our safety on the land, on the seas, and in the air, on the streets maintaining our infrastructure, and on the front lines of medical care. Enlighten with your wisdom those whom the people have set in authority, the president, his counselors and advisors, and those at every level who carry out the public trust. May understanding encourage hope and discernment, peace, prosperity, and goodwill reign among all the inhabitants of our land, and may your goodness and your message spread its blessings among us and exalt our nation in righteousness and strength. Amen. What Dennis writes is that the consideration he and others are undertaking is to remove a part of it. The part that reads, quote, the United States is a beacon of light, liberty, and justice, close quote. His point in this Excuse me. His point in this is we cannot state this with a straight face or honest heart. He writes, quote, for the first time in its history, because of the left's takeover of nearly every public and large private institution, the United States is now a net exporter of toxic ideas. All white people are racist. Healthy teenage girls should have their breasts removed if they say they are boys. There are more than two sexes. Western civilization is no better than any other. Men who say they are women can compete in women's sports. The list is long and getting longer. He goes on, quote, These ideas have spread around the world. Where did they come from? Not from France or Germany, but from America, from our colleges and universities, our medical schools, medical associations and hospitals, our media, and from one of our two major political parties. As as regards us being a beacon of liberty, Never has freedom, including the most important freedom of all, the freedom of speech, been at as low a level in America as it is today. Close quote. And we all have to kind of nod at most of this, don't we? The idea that these ideas and philosophies come from America and not, say, Germany, the fount of relativism and philosophy, that's what stings the most. But in fairness, it's not totally new. Scholars here and there for years have been pointing this out since at least the 1950s. In fact, you have often heard me quote in these monologues the political philosopher Leo Strauss 
teacher to Alan Bloom, Walter Burns, and Harry Jaffa, among others. In his book, Unnatural Right and History, written in the 1950s, he said this, he wrote this, quote, While abandoning the idea of natural right, and through abandoning it, abandoning the idea of humanity, German thought created the historical sense, and thus was led eventually to unqualified relativism. What was a tolerably accurate description of German thought some 20 years ago would now be true, would now appear to be true of Western thought in general. It would not be the first time that a nation defeated on the battlefield and, as it were, annihilated as a political being had deprived its conqueror of the most sublime fruit of victory by imposing on him the yoke of its own thought. Whatever might be true of the thought of the American people, American social science has adopted the very attitude toward natural right which a generation ago could still be described with some plausibility as characteristically German. In other words, as early as less than a decade after the conclusion of World War II, we weren't imposing natural right on those we defeated. We were adopting already their notions of relativism and importing them here. One might say the exact same thing after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. It's not as if we imposed Western thought on those we defeated. Neo-Marxism and traditional Marxism found further safe haven here. This is the problem of lack of confidence in our own way of life, of course. The kind of stuff that scholars like Jean-Francois Ravel pointed out when he said, quote, clearly a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself, close quote. I think of this as another version of ideological Stockholm syndrome, the lack of conviction that we are right and the enemy is wrong. This was pointed out at the time, too, by even such popular writers as P.J. O'Rourke, who, witnessing the fall of the Berlin Wall, noticed when he came back to America the following, quote, When I got back to the United States, I was looking through the magazines and newspapers, and it seemed that all I saw were editorial writers pulling long faces about whither a united Germany and Whence America's adjustments to the new realities in Europe? And I thought, is that the kind of noise people were making in Times Square on VE Day? And so it took about a generation from that moment, 1989, to truly settle in here in a way that seems to suffuse too much, if not almost all of American society and culture, to the point we sincerely, or some of us very sincerely, believe we are no longer a beacon of light, liberty, and justice anymore. And it's awfully hard to deny in so many decisive respects. I always thought it interesting that when protesters in Hong Kong rose up, they did so with American flags, American iconography, and the Declaration of Independence, just as did those brave souls some 30 years earlier in Tiananmen Square. All the while at the time here, we were punishing, oh, NBA coaches and fans for raising Hong Kong iconography and saying we stand with Hong Kong against the communist Chinese because China had such a purchase on the NBA as it does so many things. It wouldn't allow the National Basketball Association, wouldn't allow us to stand up for those in Hong Kong who were protesting with American iconography. That to me seemed the greatest defeat of all 
the unkindest cut of all. My worry was not then and is not now that we will immediately behave like China. My worry is that we have adopted the Maoist philosophy in back of the behavior of China. It's their philosophy we are adopting adopting here, not their economic strength or military criminality. But soon, as Lincoln once put it, after philosophy, theology of the day fast joins the cry. And we find ourselves in a country that thinks of the First Amendment about as valuably as China does, just as we find ourselves in a country that thinks it can change human nature, as any Marxist state like China does. Now, I do have a cautionary note about all being lost. Much of it will hinge and hang on how we handle the issues involved in the First Amendment, religious freedom as much as freedom of speech. Both are opiates to the left, as they were to Marx or any regime of tyranny. I still think the greatest example is the suppression and censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story. It literally changed an election. The apparatus of the state via over 50 former intelligence officials, was used as the pretext that media and social media could deploy to censor that story a month before the election, a story we know from highly credible polling that would have shifted enough votes away from Joe Biden and to Donald Trump by enough voters to have swung the election if they knew of the story. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an avowed socialist, said in the House of Representatives today, today, that the suppression of that story was, in her words, quote, a 24-hour hiccup, close quote. Her math is off by over 330 hours. It was, in fact, a two-week ban, which tells me either she doesn't know the story or doesn't think it was a big deal. More likely, she supported its suppression, as today she tried to stop the hearing on social media censorship in the first place. She who supported and supports government disinformation boards right out of 1984, right out of the Soviet Union, right out of communist China. But were it not for the censorship and suppression of the free press and that story and had Donald Trump won re-election, we likely would not be thinking America is no longer the beacon of light, liberty and justice. And even with Joe Biden in the White House, We do possess one half of the legislative branch in Washington, as well as the Supreme Court, so we may not be as lost as we may first think. Emphasis on the word may. But we damn sure have accelerated the challenge and the strength of the opponent. And they sure have marched through and taken over a great many more institutions over the past generation. There was a reason the man whose birthday we celebrated earlier this week, Ronald Reagan, gave his final address from the White House on the importance of an informed patriotism and the accurate teaching of American history. He said in that speech, if we don't know who we were or who we are, we will not know what to be. This from the man who warned freedom is not passed down in the bloodstream and is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't heed his warning then and We're racing to catch up now. Let us not forget the words of Montesquieu. The deterioration of every government begins with the decay of the principle upon which it was founded. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I was trying to think... um, what to say about the State of the Union that hasn't already been said. 
And I focused on something Guy Benson focused on, so I will yield to him, and I haven't heard a lot of talk about that. He has a piece up at Town Hall, Biden's Unserious Lecture on Political Violence. He writes, truthfully, I don't have many thoughts on President Biden's State of the Union address. It was energetic by his standards, uncomfortably so at times, and filled with the usual laundry list of anecdotes, claims, and proposals. It was disjointed, offered no thematic arc, and was delivered fairly well. On the Biden grading curve, that is, which to say, not terribly well. On substance, some of it was fine, some of it was objectionable and misleading, but good politics. Some of it was outright dishonest or demagogic. Some of it was stirring, stirring and uplifting. Some of it was trivial and petty. Almost none of it was memorable. Most of it will be, gotten, be forgotten by Friday at the latest. I could once again have done without most of the jeering and heckling, even if some of the president's points were shameless. But I would like to make three points. First, for all the president's familiar rhetoric about unity, bipartisanship, and working together, it largely rings empty coming from the man who compared the Republican Party to Bull Connor and George Wallace just not that long ago. Second, Republicans loudly objected to Biden's unfair characterization that they support cutting entitlement programs as part of the debt ceiling negotiations. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has repeatedly stated that such a proposal is off the table. Biden didn't trick the GOP into agreeing with him, as some high-fiving liberals are claiming. He badly distorted their position, got raucously fact-checked, then decided to take the bipartisan agreement on this point as a win. I agree that using the leverage point of debt limit fight is an inappropriate moment for trying to exact reforms on this front. But that being said, Social Security and Medicare still desperately need reform. Finally, President Biden devoted a portion of his remarks to condemning political violence. His hook for this passage was the recovery of Paul Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House's husband, after a terrible attack on the couple's San Francisco home. Biden framed it as right-wing violence fueled by election conspiracies. The assailant has reportedly embraced an array of unhinged beliefs over the years, many of them decidedly left-wing. Presenting this illegal immigrant as a partisan in either direction, especially of the right, is ridiculous. The man's own son has identified him as a non-right-winger. Not attempting to associate him with any side would have been a much better approach, but Biden just can't resist. He also whiffed on a glaring opportunity to call out an example of dangerous radicalism within his own tribe, which was literally staring him in the face. The Kavanaugh assassination plot, to my knowledge, has never been directly condemned by this president. The news media, which frequently harps on attacks against our democracy, ignored the episode to a scandalous extent. There are several reasons why trust in the press has cratered to catastrophic lows, and this sort of hackery is one of them. Biden could have also rejected the campaign of terrorism and threats against pro-life centers and churches. The FBI director recently revealed that the vast majority of post-Dobbs criminal violence and intimidation in the abortion space has come from pro-abortion extremists. But Biden leads a party whose Speaker Emeritus pointedly refused to disavow such terrorism last year, whose House caucus near unanimously voted against a resolution, a resolution doing that just last month, 
and some of whose members wore abortion celebration pins to his speech last night, ghoulishly featuring a heart symbol inside a letter O in abortion. Biden could have lent some credibility to his expression of concern over politically motivated violence by speaking even one important, if awkward, truth to his own coalition. He chose not to. So his message will not resonate as authentic, and his professed interest in unity and healing will not be advanced. Speaking of which, I'll leave you with these numbers, which serve as the backdrop of his speech from CBS News. What percentage of Americans believe their families' finances are better or worse since Biden took office? 18% think they're better. 49% think they're worse. What percentage of Americans since Biden has taken office think political division has gotten better or worse? 19% think better. 50% think worse. What percentage of Americans think illegal immigration has gotten better or worse since Joe Biden took office? 21% better, 51% worse. That's CBS. There's a hardened support for him that varies between 18 and 20% in thinking he has done better for this country since he's taken office. And there is a hardened 49 to 51% who are saying, It's gotten worse. Very few saying it's about the same. Final point. When he talked about the problem of COVID having shut down our schools, let's correct that record right quick, shall we? COVID didn't shut down our schools. Government leaders shut down our schools. I want to talk to you a little bit, too, today about um, the hearings that took place at the Government Oversight Committee, uh, led by um, led by uh, Congressman Comer and, and Jordan. Yes, we got a rant from Oversight Committee member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cortez, as I mentioned earlier. I think I have her audio, if I'm not mistaken, on it, um, and I will play you. Yes, here she is. Here she is getting the math wrong, getting the story wrong, but here she is. So they've dragged a social media platform here in Congress. They're weaponizing the use of this committee so that they can do it again. A whole hearing about a 24-hour hiccup in a right-wing political operation. What was the right-wing political operation? What was the right-wing political operation? The New York Post wrote a story about something the FBI had called Hunter Biden's laptop, which they had concealed from us for a year. Not a 24-hour hiccup, by the way, especially when the New York Post was banned from Twitter for two weeks. That is why we are here right now. And it is, it, it's just a, an abuse of public resources, an abuse of public time. We could be talking about health care. We could be talking about bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. We could be talking about abortion rights, civil rights, voting rights. But instead, we're talking about Hunter Biden's half-fake laptop story. Half-fake? Which half? Maybe the Russian disinformation half. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. He's also the host of his own radio show, The Word on Wealth, heard every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. right here on 960 
the Patriot. How are you, John? Fantastic. Just I was talking to Bill here offline and uh, just loving this weather. I wish I was outside. I said it's so beautiful out there. Well, yeah, but go out at seven in the morning and walk your dog. It was 42 degrees. Oh, this my morning. God. It was just so cold. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, but look at now. Come on. Uh, well, I, I, we, we have work to do. Walk your dog. You walk yeah, your... I cannot walk my dog oh right my now. Oh, my God. So she goes crazy if I don't walk her Bring before her to work. 8. Uh, I'll, you walk her before 8 and tell me about the <laughs> weather. John, um, I at first thought, oh, good. Um, Joe Biden is getting off uh, this uh, tax, tax, tax concept uh, mm. for saving our economy and focusing on non-compete clauses between cashiers. Yeah. I mean, but it's, uh, it's the truth is he actually did have a lot of tax talk in his speech last night, mm-hmm. especially this one that may – I mean, they've obviously market tested or, or focus tested this phrase, this uh, – Proposal for a billionaire's minimum tax. I don't think it's as good or will do as much as what he says. Right. Or at least as it's not as good as it sounds, I might just say. Well, there's a lot of parts to this. Yeah. And what I don't know is how they come up with the bill. Of course, it's all in how you market something, right? I suppose. So you call it a billionaire tax. Yeah. But what it says, it uh, basically, basically says calling for a 20% levy on households with a net worth of more than $100 million. Right. Well, that's not a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> right. We have a terminology problem. But you know what? Problem. If you say right. you're going after billionaires, right. there's very few of those per right. se. Uh, so that sounds all well and good. Uh, but no, it, and, and if you get down to the nitty gritty of this, the general explanations of what they're trying to do here, right. Seth, uh, one of them is uh, this, you know, we have what's called an inheritance tax right, right now. Right. Uh, and if you pass away, you know, they wanted to lower the value of that. Uh, inheritance tax mm-hmm. limit, which mm-hmm. could affect a lot of people. Uh, but also, they're talking about, you know, a step up. We talk about step up of cost basis. Right. We're getting into some tax, uh, you know, issues here. But, you know, if I pass away and I have a, a capital asset, whether it's a piece of real estate or it's uh, stocks or bonds or mutual funds that have appreciated, but I leave them to someone upon my death, the beneficiary of that gets what's called a step up in the basis to the current value and doesn't have to pay tax on that. Now, that's everybody out there who owns a home or some investment property or, uh, you know, investments that gets to, you know, have an advantage of this. That's not the billionaires. No. That's the average Joes, you and I. That's why people think it doesn't just exist for billionaires. Right. So this, quote, billionaire tax, this is – there's a lot of parts to this also. And one of them also has to do with the issue of capital gains, doesn't it? Yes. That's its own weird thing. Oh, this is a big one too. So you would have to actually – uh, any of the appreciated assets that right. you have unrealized, which right. means you haven't sold them yet. Right. It's just on paper. Yeah, just on paper that you would have to pay tax possibly on that. Right. You know, right. and they're talking about the the the, more, the wealthier people, of course. Uh, but again, define wealthier people and so on. Um, so, boy, it's really. Uh, not what you would think. And I just opened up the general, uh, you know, um, explanation of this administration's fiscal year 2023 revenue proposals, and that's 120 pages. <laughs> just that. <laughs> this is just some explanation. I have an idea how to save money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Don't print uh, that. I understand how people say we have to pass this before we, uh, you know, read it. 
because yeah, nobody course. has time to read these things. Everything's uh, you know time of you know time of the essence. But if they here. pass it, it's going to hit people far less than billionaires, yes, far less not. than hundred millionaires. It's going to hit people who might simply own a home. The idea of raising the capital gains is going to be a very odd thing and a very big distortion in how yeah. people account invest. And, and so yeah, forth. and I also think it's worth pointing out too. There's you know, if you seized every dollar of every billionaire in America, not hundred millionaire, but billionaire people worth north of a billion dollars, yeah. you'd fund the government yeah. for one year for half a year. There's Agreed. just not enough money there for him to get what he wants. There just hey, isn't. Hey, Seth, I want to throw something out yeah. there. We have a workshop yeah, coming please. up here at our mm-hmm. company, yep. Grand Canyon Planning, and our learning center here at our office. And we encourage uh, people to sign up for that. You can go to our website at grandcanyonplanning.com. And that's maximizing your Social Security benefits. Damn. See how you can uh, pr- you know, do that. Uh, sign up for that for that workshop. It's uh, a couple of weeks away. Good. Uh, Good. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Tippic and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. No, that's great. That's yep. great. GrandCanyonPlanning.com if you want to see how to maximize that. That's wonderful, John. You bet. Thank you very much. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. A lot of you have been hearing me talk about why refi for a long time now, and if you still have questions about how an investment with them from you can work for you, they would love for you to give them a call. They're happy to put you in touch with any number of really satisfied customers from the Phoenix area who have been happily investing with them and seeing great returns. Their phone number is 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. And thinking about your IRA, if you would like it to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on Joe Biden's economy, did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds? And you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com. Really great people. All right. So the claim from Joe Biden on this point last night, which is meant to tug at the heartstrings, especially when he makes the claim that billionaires are paying less in taxes than school teachers and firefighters, uh, he said, in a typical year, billionaires pay an average tax rate of just over 8%. To get that number, the White House is including unsold stock owned by wealthy families. They're counting unsold stock as income. So people would pay taxes on it normally anyway right now if they sold it. When you sell it, it's a taxable event. What he wants to do is tax it before you sell it or without selling it. Independent tax analyses show that, indeed, the wealthiest Americans pay approximately 22 to 25 percent a year in income taxes, not 8 percent, not lower than a school teacher or firefighter who pay much less. And the rich do pay for almost 50 percent of all federal income taxes. All right. That's one set of nonsense. The other set of nonsense we're trying to clear up and My gosh, uh, Jim Jordan is doing a great job of trying to clear it up. We're in hearings today with censorship and government interference with social media. 
This was the meeting on the Oversight uh, Investigations Committee that AOC said was a waste of time over a 24-hour hiccup. It wasn't a 24-hour hiccup. If it was a year, perhaps, with the FBI not telling anyone about the laptop that they had possession of. But it was certainly two weeks that the New York Post was banned from Twitter. Uh, let me play just a little of uh, the hearing from Jim Jordan um, leading today with the witnesses. That the Biden laptop story was fake. No, sir, they did not. Did they tell you it was hacked? No, sir, they did not. On October 14, 2020, Twitter blocks the New York Post story on the Hunter Biden, uh, the, the New York Post story on Hunter Biden and suspends their account. The night before, FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan sends you an email. The email says this, heads up, I will be sending a teleporter link for you to download 10 documents. It's not spam. Please confirm receipt when you get it. Two minutes later... 6.24 p.m., you respond back, received and downloaded, thanks. What were those 10 documents? Twitter didn't give me access to my laptop, but Special Agent Chan has said publicly, and the FBI has confirmed that those documents did not relate to Hunter Biden, and that's my recollection of them. What did they relate to? My interactions with Agent Chan and with the FBI almost entirely focused on what the FBI called malign foreign interference. Things like Russian troll farms and Iranian involvement in the elections. Oh, did you know Iran was involved in our elections? Funny how that didn't get reported much, did it? Not on any type of domestic Any of the information on there classified? No, sir, I do not hold a security clearance, and so I would not have received any classified information. Who does hold a security clearance? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to second email here. I'm just curious about this. Uh, what I propose is that 30 days out from the election, this is, a, this is another email to you from Mr. Chan. 30 days, you get, we get uh, temporary clearances. You pick who they are. Who were the people at Twitter who had a security clearance? You understand what's going on there? The FBI is offering temporary security clearances to employees of Twitter so that they can share classified intelligence with employees at Twitter. To be honest, sir, I'm not sure. And we never ultimately followed through on this plan to get temporary clearances. Did anyone at Twitter have a security clearance? It's my understanding that at least some current or former employees did hold clearances, but I wasn't certain about Ms. that. Ms. Gaddy, do you know if anyone took up Mr. Chan's offer to hand out security clearances 30 days before the 2020 election? Not that I'm aware. So we don't know how many people had security clearances? Twitter, do we know? Mr. Baker, Mr. Gaddy, Ms. Gaddy, anyone know how many people on Twitter had a security clearance in the 30 days prior to the election? I don't know the answer to that question. Ms. Gaddy? I do not know. Mr. Roth, you don't know? No, sir. How about the last one? Ms. Navaroli, do you know? No. I mean, it seemed like the offer was to sort of just hand them out like candy. I just wondered who had them. No one knows? Okay. Uh, did, so the FBI didn't tell you uh, that, the, that it was fake, didn't tell you that it was hacked. Uh, and, and Mr. Roth, did the did the story violate your policies? In my judgment at the time, no, it did not. Yeah, that's what you said. Said what I would propose. Uh, excuse me, as you said, it isn't clearly a violation of our hack materials policy, nor is it clearly a violation of anything else. So I think what a lot of people are wondering is if it didn't violate your policies, and they didn't tell you it was fake, didn't tell you it was hacked, why'd you take it down? The company made a decision that found that it did violate the policy. It wasn't my personal judgment at the time that it did, but the decision was communicated to me by my direct supervisor. And ultimately, I didn't disagree with it enough to object. You know, you know what? You know what I think happened, Mr. Roth? I think I think you guys got played. I think you guys wanted to 
wanted to take it deep down. We saw what the chairman put up where you said, you know, everyone in the White House is, an, is a fascist. I think you guys wanted it to t be taken down. I think you meet with these guys every week. We know that's been established in the Twitter files. You had weekly meetings with Mr. Chan in the run-up to the election. They send you all kinds of emails. They send you documents on the super secret James Bond teleporter. You get information on that. I think you guys wanted to take it down. I think you guys got played by the FBI. And that's the scary part. Because we had 50, I mean, this to me is the real takeaway. 51 former intelligence officials five days after you guys take down the Hunter Biden story and block the New York Post account. Five days later, 51 former intel officials send a letter and they say, the Hunter Biden story has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. The information operation was run on you guys. And then by extension, run on the American people. And that's the concern. And to Mr. Raskin's point that you guys aren't bound by the First Amendment because you're a private. That's that. I, I think that's the key thing. Someone got played here and it was employees at Twitter and there was a disinformation campaign and it was run by the FBI. He's going to go into the questions about whether they thought that they were violating the First Amendment and for whatever it's they didn't think that they were violating the First Amendment because they were a private company and the First Amendment, uh, uh, you know, um, only works against government entities. But what the government cannot do, what the government cannot do is ask or pressure private companies to do what it cannot do. Famous case, unanimously decided by the Supreme Court, written by Chief Justice Warren Burger. In 1973, that says it is an I'm quoting directly an axiomatic principle that the government may not induce, encourage, or promote private persons to accomplish what is constitutionally forbidden to it to accomplish. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I played you a part of the House Oversight Committee hearings uh, that Jim Jordan was interrogating Twitter employees on vis-a-vis -vis suppression of the Hunter, lap, Hunter Biden laptop story. There's another part of the hearings, too, on the suppression of alternative views um, with regard to COVID, uh, COVID mitigation strategies, the censorship of people like Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, the censorship of people like at the Great Barrington Declaration. And uh, that, too, should uh, just give you a flavor of it. This is Nancy Mace of South Carolina taking the lead here. I ask of you, where did you go to medical school? I did not go to medical school. I'm sorry? I did not go to medical school. That's what I thought. Why do you think you or anyone else at Twitter had the medical expertise to censor a doctor's expert opinion? Our policies regarding COVID were designed to protect individuals. We were seeing... You guys censored Harvard-educated doctors, Stanford-educated doctors, doctors that are educated in the best places in the world, and you silenced those voices. My next question is, did the U.S. government... Oh, excuse me. I have another chart I want to show you, Ms. Gaddy. Um, I have another tweet by someone with a following of a full 18,000 followers. This person... But a chart from the CDC on Twitter is the CDC's own data, so it's accurate by your standards. And you all labeled this as misleading. You're not a doctor, right, Ms. Gaddy? No, I'm not. Okay. What makes you think you or anyone else at Twitter have the medical expertise to censor actual, accurate 
CDC data. I'm not familiar with these particular situations. Yeah, I'm sure you're not. Yeah, that's the value of these hearings, and I can attest I know exactly what Nancy Mace is talking about with that example. Even when using CDC's own data and putting it up verbatim, if you drew a different conclusion from what they wanted you to conclude with that data, you were censored. We had that problem here. I remember very well when I was being censored on YouTube on my monologues about COVID, I was told that the only information on COVID YouTube will allow has to come from the federal government. So I played an experiment, and I read a verbatim the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Eileen McCants-Gatt's speech. You would think that that would be considered federal government, Department of Health and Human Services, under which the CDC serves. And I read her speech verbatim without comment talking about the mental health aspects of what we would be doing to our children with the ongoing school closures. And that was censored, too. It was all pretext, and none of it was true anyway. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 